0: We now continue in the book The Atonement by Arthur W. Pink. We continue in chapter 7 The Atonement Its Nature Continued We have already pointed out that the expression of Romans 8.3 made in the likeness of sin's flesh clearly presupposes the transfer of his people's sins to Christ and that what happened immediately after his birth was in full keeping with this fact and cannot be understood apart from it. That he was circumcised, Luke 2.21, not only proved that he had been made in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.7, but also evidenced that he had been made in the likeness of sin's flesh. So, too, the ceremonial purification of his mother, Luke 2.22, and her presentation of a sin offering, Leviticus 12.2.6, was in perfect keeping with the fact that though his humanity was immaculate, yet he had entered in this world officially guilty. As little children we sin. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Psalm 58.3 And therefore as a child Christ suffered, suffered not only as our substitute, but because our sins had been transferred to him. In our youth we sinned, and as a youth Christ suffered, and suffered at the hands of God, as his own words clearly testify. I am afflicted and ready to die from youth up. I suffer thy terrors. I am distracted. Psalms 88.15 In the prime of our manhood we sinned, and in the prime of his manhood Christ suffered. Let us refer once more to his being assailed by Satan. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that he suffered being tempted, and that very suffering was penal that Christ's suffering under Satan was designed and appointed as an infliction from God is proved by the statement that Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, Matthew four one. Man, having allowed himself to be overcome by Satan, God has, by a just sentence, delivered him up as a slave to his tyranny. Therefore, it was necessary that Christ, as his sinful people's substitute, should be exposed to the harassings of the devil, that in this respect also he might satisfy divine justice. Most assuredly Satan and his agents could never have assailed Christ had he not been so parenthesis legally charged with the guilt of our crimes that God righteously exposed him to the injuries from them, Acts two twenty three. The elect themselves as sinners were subject to Satan's power, Colossians one thirteen, and that, by the righteous sentence of the judge of all the earth Therefore, they not only were the prey of the mighty, but also were lawful captives, Isaiah 49:24. Therefore, as Christ came here, as surely in their room, he, by virtue of God's sentence, also became subject to the buffetings of Satan. Christ's passive or suffering obedience is not to be confined to what he experienced in the garden and on the cross. This suffering was the accumulation of his pie killer, P-I-A-C-U-L-E-R Sorrow but not the whole of it. Everything in his human and earthly career that was distressing belongs to his passive obedience. It is a true remark by of Jonathan Edwards that the blood of Christ's circumcision was as really a part of his vicarious atonement as the blood that flowed it from his pierced side. And not only his suffering Proper, but his humiliation also was expiatory. W. Shedd. The satisfaction or propitiation of Christ consists either in his suffering evil or his being subject to abasement. Whatever Christ was subject to, which was the judicial fruit of sin, had the nature of satisfaction for sin. But not only proper suffering, but all abasement and depression of the state and circumstances of mankind. Francis' human nature, below its primitive honor and dignity, such as his body remaining under death and body and soul remaining separate, are the judicial fruits of sin. Jonathan Edwards wrote that in 1743. When the Scripture speaks of the satisfaction of Christ, they ascribe it to his sufferings in general, as Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, That is, he suffered all the pains and sorrows due to us from sin. It is to be most carefully noted that the inspired declaration, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6, comes before he was oppressed, and before he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as it was at the commencement of his public ministry, and not while he hung on the cross that God moved one of his servants to cry, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world." Christ was brought to the slaughter before the three hours of darkness, yet even then affliction lay upon him, and our iniquity was exacted of him. So too this very chapter, Isaiah 53, ascribes our healing to the stripes which he received from men as plainly as other passages attribute our being delivered from the curse of the law through God visiting him with its curse. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, First Peter 2.21, to suffer here denotes to be an affliction, for all those sufferings are here intended in which Christ has left us an example of patience. These sufferings he affirms to be for us, that is, undergone as well in our stead as for our good. For this is ordinarily the signification of the word hooper, and that this is the true meaning of Peter, we conclude Hence, that in 3.18, he says, Christ suffered for sins, namely, that he might be the perpetuation for our sins. Written by H. Wittsius. When the sovereign rights of God are emphasized, there is generally raised the objection that we are hereby reducing man to a mere machine. Many are they who are prepared to hold a brief for human responsibility, but rare indeed is it that we ever hear anything about transferred responsibility. Yet it is at this point lies one of the chief wonders and glories of the gospel. The responsibility of God's people was transferred to Christ. He assumed their liabilities, made himself chargeable with their debts, answerable to every demand of the law against them. Had this not been the case, how could God have righteously laid the iniquities of his people upon the head of his Holy Son? Still less, how could he have called for the sword of justice to smite him? It was because Christ was made sin for us that he was also made a curse for us. The latter could not be without the former, as this is the point of such vital importance we must amplify a little further. Hebrews 7.22 declares that Christ is surety of a better covenant. He was the sponsor of his people as Judah undertook to be for Benjamin. I will be surety for him. Out of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, let me bear the blame forever. Genesis 43.9 Or, as Paul was for Onesimus, If he hath wronged thee or owed aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. 19 and nineteen. Just so did Christ engage himself unto his Father for us, Reckon to me whatever they owe thee, and I will satisfy for it. A surety whose name is put into bond is not only bound to pay the debt, but he makes it his own debt also, even as well as it is the principal so that he may be sued and charged for the debt. So Christ, when he once made himself a surety, he so put himself in the room of sinners that what the law could lay to their charge, it might lay to his written by T. Goodwin in 1680. Christ must take on him the guilt of our transgressions before he could take our punishment upon him and so satisfy divine justice on our behalf. That he did so is demonstrated by his own words. It is indeed remarkable to find out how that Christ actually owned our sins as being his. First, in the 40th Psalm, that this psalm is a messianic one we know from its quotation in Hebrew 10. That it contains the very words of Christ is plainly evident from verses 7 through 11. He is still the speaker in verse 12, where he declares, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head, therefore my heart faileth me. What a proof that the sins of his people have been transferred to him. Second, in the 69th, another great messianic psalm. There, too, we find him saying, O oh God! Thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Verse 5. How unmistakably do those words show our sins had been reckoned to him. Those sins were his not by perpetration, but by imputation. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on, parenthesis, to a tree, 1 Peter 2.24. Our sins here are our liabilities to punishment on account of our violations of the divine law and the necessary consequences of those liabilities, in other words, guilt in the sense of binding over to punishment and punishment itself. J. Brown Those sins Christ bare endured as a heavy load. The prime meaning of the Greek verb is to carry up, the allusion being to the typical animal which was carried up to the altar which was always erected on an elevated place. The margin gives the preferable rendering to the tree. The preposition is the same as in the next verse, ye are returned to the shepherd. The reason why the cross is here termed the tree we will state a little later. There was a needs be for Christ taking on him the guilt of our transgressions in order for divine justice to punish him, for we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. Romans two. 2. Whomsoever God punishes for sin must be guilty of sin. Therefore we read, For he hath made him sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Each word here calls for a separate paragraph. The opening, 4, assigns the ground on which the message of reconciliation, verses 19 and 20, rests. Verse 19 states that God does not impute trespasses unto his people. Verse 21 tells us why. Because they were imputed to Christ. Here, the atonement is traced back to its source. God was in Christ reconciling. He made Christ to be sin, when? In the everlasting covenant, by the mutual agreement of the Father and the Son. Then we beheld the fitness of Christ to make atonement. He was personally sinless. It was God who so adjudged him. Who knew no sin is the negative way of saying that his obedience was perfect. The law had no fault against him, either of omission or commission. Nevertheless, he... God made him, parenthesis, legally constituted Christ, to be sin for us, not in the semblance, but in the awful reality, and thus from the moment of his incarnation. In entering the law place of his people, Christ became answerable to the righteousness of God on their behalf. Whatever they owed must be exacted from their sponsor. He must pay their debts, suffer the full penalty of their iniquities, receive sin's wages in their room. Christ now became exposed to all that the holiness of God must inflict upon sin. Therefore we read, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curses is every, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13 The cross was accursed not only in the opinion of men, but by the decrees of the divine law. Therefore, when Christ was lifted up Upon it, he rendered himself obnoxious to the curse. Calvin wrote that. The very mode of death which God appointed for his Son reveals to us the penal nature of it. The cross was no mere accident, as though it made no difference what form his death took. Fundamental reasons render it expedient and necessary that the surety should die a death which was accursed of God. Hence the frequent reference in the New Testament to the cross and the tree. John 12:32-33. At Calvary's, God's terrible curse on sin was publicly displayed, of which the cross was not the cause but the symbol. John 3:14. Under the Mosaic Law, parenthesis to which the Apostle refers in Galatians 3:13, hanging on a tree was the death reserved for great criminals. Hence, the force of the word tree in First Peter 2:24. Christ hanging upon the tree was the public testimony to God's curse on him. The cause of the curse was not the hanging on the tree, but the sin with which he was charged, and that mode of punishment exhibited that he was the object of God's holy displeasure, not indeed because he was suspended on the tree, but because he was the sin bearer and the punishment of the offenses for which that ignominious penalty was allotted was then inflicted. Divine wisdom appointed that he who bore the sin of the world should be exposed as a curse, for the divine displeasure was there most awfully displayed. Written by George Smearton. As to why this means and method of death was selected by God out of all other possible poisoning, stoning, beheading, and so forth, Genesis 3 supplies the answer. As the fatal sin which diffused the curse over the human race was connected with the forbidden tree, God wisely ordered that the last Adam should expiate sin by being suspended on a tree, and he appointed in the law, Deuteronomy 21, 23, such a symbol of a curse as reminded all men of the origin of the divine curse on the world. He would not have the curse removed in any other way, G. Smearitan, Among the Romans, death by crucifixion was the deepest possible humiliation. It was the most degrading of punishments inflicted only on slaves and the lowest of people, and if free men were at any time subjected to crucifixion for great crimes such as robbery, high treason, or sedition, the sentence could not be executed till they were put into the catalog of slaves and that by the utmost humiliation. Their liberty was taken from them by servile stripes and scourging, as was done to Christ. Thus the curse of God's law was executed upon the head and substitute of his people. To preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, is to proclaim and expound his being made a curse for us. Because Christ was made sin and made a curse for his people, the wrath of God's holiness flamed against him, and the sword of his justice pierced him. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd, Zechariah thirteen, seven. And see Matthew twenty-six thirty-one. God inflicted punishment on Christ as if he had been a personal offender. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to he hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sins, Isaiah fifty-three ten. As all the sufferings of men, whether inflicted immediately by God or immediately by Satan or men, Jeremiah 2.15.17 Arrive from the demerits of sin So all the sufferings of Christ from man, Satan, God Arose from the demerits of his people's sins Imputed to their substitute The punishment which God meted out to Christ Was the very punishment which was due his people That he was accursed of God is seen from his hanging on the tree That he received sin's wages was evidenced by God's forsaking him that he was numbered with transgressors was exhibited by his dying between two thieves. True, he did not suffer eternally, for the eternity of our punishment was only a circumstance arising from our incapacity to suffer the whole weight of God's wrath in a brief season, and therefore the brevity of duration of Christ's sufferings is no valid objection against the identity of penalty which he received. Moreover, the infinite dignity of his person more than compensated the law. To the enlightened eye there is found on the cross another inscription besides that which Pilate ordered to be written there, the victim of guilt, the wages of sin, J. Brown. Chapter 8, The Atonement, Its Nature Included. We have pointed out in the preceding chapters that the particular aspect of Christ's satisfaction, which is now before us, constitutes the very heart of this mighty subject. As the physical heart is to the human body, so is the nature of the atonement to the whole of this wondrous theme. When a man's heart becomes seriously affected, the whole of his constitution suffers. In like manner, when we err in our views of the precise character of Christ's obedience and sufferings, The whole of our system of truth suffers injury in exact proportion. The acid test of a theologian's views and a preacher's capability to expound the gospel is his orthodoxy at this particular point. Hence, because this part of the truth is of such vital importance, we have prayerfully sought to examine it with sevenfold thoroughness and set before our readers at some length the results of our investigation. First, we have shown that the work of Christ was federal in its character, that is, Christ became legally one of his people. He came here not to strangers, but to his brethren. Hebrews 2.12 He came here not to produce a people for himself, but to secure a people already his. Ephesians 1.4 and Matthew one twenty one. The place we occupy was under the law. We were placed under it at creation, and perfect obedience was made the conditioning of our well-being. By our fallen Adam, we became incapable of obeying the demands of the law and subject to an unrelaxable penalty. The law remained over us, therefore, as an inexorable taskmaster demanding the impossible and as the organ of immutable justice insisting upon our death. Therefore, to be our Savior, the Son of God was made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. He was, by God's ordination, transferred to that position, Thus, the place he took was our law place. In taking that place, he necessarily assumed all our responsibilities, obedience as a condition of life, suffering as a penal consequence of disobedience. Second, we have shown that the work of Christ was vicarious in its character. Substitution has been thus defined. A substitute is one who does or suffers the same thing which the person or persons for whom he is substituted would have done or suffered. The scripture teaches plainly that Christ's obedience was as truly vicarious as was his suffering, and that he reconciled us to the Father by the one as well as the other. It is for this reason we have chosen the term satisfaction in preference to the more popular atonement. The word atonement signifies only the expiation of our guilt by Christ's vicarious sufferings, but expresses nothing concerning the relation which his obedience sustains to our salvation as that meritorious condition upon which the divine favor and the promised reward have by covenant been suspended. On the other hand, the word satisfaction exactly expresses all that Christ has done as our substitute in our stead and for our sakes, to the end of satisfying in our behalf the federal demands of the law and of securing for us the rewards conditioned upon their fulfillment. His whole work was of the nature of satisfaction. Written by A. A. Hodge Third, we have shown that the work of Christ was penal in its character. This follows of inevitable necessity. In becoming one with his criminal people, Christ entered into their law place before God. In acting as the substitute of his people, Christ must receive that which was due them from God. Because the sins of his church were transferred to Christ, he must be paid their wages. Because he took our law place, the curse of the law must fall upon him. Because he was made sin for us, the sword of divine justice must smite him. As 1 Corinthians 15.3 declares, the God-man not only died for us, but Christ died for our sins, which was only made possible by our sins having been federally placed upon him. Because our sins were imputed to him, the wrath of God fell upon him, and he was visited with all, our, with all that our sins merited. We are now ready to show number four, It was a sacrificial work. From the many passages which set forth this aspect of Christ's redemption, we may cite the following. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah 53.10. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5.7. Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior, Ephesians 5.2. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, for this he did once when he offered up himself? Hebrews 7.27 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9.14 Ere attempting to divine the character of Christ's sacrifice, let us remind ourselves that he presented himself as a sacrifice to God by covenant agreement. As we are told in Romans 3:25, whom God hath foreordained a propitiation through faith in His blood, God can be pleased only with that which He has appointed. The everlasting covenant furnishes the key to many a verse of Scripture. For instance, when Christ was about to go to the cross, he said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified," John 13:31. But how could that be? Was it not rather his degradation? No, for the eternal three had assigned to the God-man the work of mediation, and that was a high honor. So the Son of Man viewed it. It is our glory, too, to bow to God's will and keep his appointments. Second, though Christ offered himself a sacrifice according to divine appointment, it was also by his own free consent. As in all our obedience, there are two principal ingredients to the true and right constitution of it, namely the matter of the obedience itself and the principle or fountain of it in us. In other words, the deed and the will behind it, which later God accepts in us oftentimes without. 2 Corinthians 8.12 And always more than the outward deed, so in Christ's obedience, which is both the pattern and measure of ours, there are these two eminent parts which complete it, the obedience itself, his willingness thereto. First, Christ was willing from all eternity. This is clear from the covenant, for that is a mutual agreement between two parties. It is also necessarily implied in his being made a surety, Hebrews 7.22, an undertaking on his part. A surety is a plighter of his trough by striking hands, as the phrase is in the original, Proverbs 22.26. Again, his willingness from everlasting until the time of his incarnation is evidenced from Proverbs 8.30, which shows in what or whom he delighted all that while. Again, his willingness is seen in these words, he humbled himself, Philippians 2.8. Actively, not he was humbled, passively. Remarkably and blessedly is this also brought out in Hebrews 10, five seven. There we find his dedication of himself unto his great work. When he cometh into the world... He saith, Sacrifice an offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Here is a remarkable thing. The Holy Spirit has here been pleased to make known to us, parenthesis as the great Secretary of the Covenant, the very words the Son used as he left the Father's presence to come to earth, to which we may add amazing, heart-throwing facts. The Holy Spirit has also been pleased to reveal to us the first words which were uttered by the Father when his Son returned to him. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. Psalm 110 1. The point we are now dealing with is so precious that we would fain dwell upon it. There was no constraint laid upon Christ. All that he did was done freely and gladly. From the beginning of the day of his flesh, he said, Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Psalms 22 9 and that by his perfect choice. So too, as he neared the end, he could say, I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the spiders, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, Isaiah 50, 5, 6. Yes, Christ gave himself, Galatians two twenty for us. Third, as it was of the Father's appointment, and the God-man's willing consent, that he presented himself a sacrifice, So also was it by the Spirit's agency. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? Hebrews 9.14. The discharge of his entire messianic office was by the endowment of the Holy Spirit. The very title Christ means the Anointed One and was given to him because of the peculiar unction of the Spirit conferred upon him, an unction which was unique in nature and degree. At the beginning of his public ministry, he declared... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah 61.1. He was full of the Holy Spirit, Luke 4.1. And the same Spirit which led him into the wilderness, Matthew 4.1, also led him as a willing victim to the cross. We shall now take note of the various characteristics of Christ's sacrifice. A. Christ's sacrifice was a ransoming ransoming one. There are three several generic forms or conception under which the work wrought by Christ for the salvation of man is set forth. These are a, that of expiatory offering for sin, b that of redemption of the life and liberty of a captive by the payment of a ransom in his stead; and C the satisfaction of the law by the vicarious fulfillment of its demands. These different conceptions are designed both to limit and to supplement each other in a manner strictly analogous to the combination of the different perceptions, of the same object by the different bodily senses. A sense of sight, although when educated in connection with the concurrent and limiting and supplementing perceptions of the organs of touch and hearing, is unmatched as to the extent and accuracy of its information, yet would, if left to itself, never have risen beyond an infant's vague perception of a surface vicariously shaded without any sense of relation and space. All our knowledge of the material world, considered as an object of sense, arises from the education of our minds in the use of our bodily senses in combination, and the habits of judgment and inference to which are thus produced. Men learn to interpret the impressions made upon them through their eyes by means of other impressions made upon them in connection with the same object through the senses of touch and hearing, and vice versa. In like manner, our knowledge of the true nature of the work of Christ and its bearing upon us results from all the various forms in which the scriptures set forth its com- in combination, each at once limiting, modifying, and supplementing all the others. It should be noticed, moreover, that the scriptures do not present these several views as different shades of the same house to be taken in succession, but habitually present them in combination as lights and shades blend together in the same picture and producing the same intelligible expression. Thus, in the same sentence, it is said we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ had redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. That is, he redeemed us not in the sense of making a pecuniary payment in cancellation of our debts, but by his vicarious suffering, like the bleeding sacrifices of a mosaic ritual or the penalty due to our sins. The fact here, notice, that the same inspired sentences represent Christ at the same instance and in the same relation as a ransom and as a sin offering, and as made to endure the curse of the law for us, is worthy of careful study. The teaching of Scripture is not that Christ is a sacrifice and a ransom and a bearer of the curse of the law. But it is that he is that particular specie, a sacrifice which is a ransom, that his redemption is of that nature which is effected by his bearing the curse of the law in our stead, and that he redeems us by offering himself a bleeding sacrifice to God. Thus, the teaching of the Holy Spirit is as precise as any ecclesiastical theory of atonement. Christ saves us by being a sacrifice, he is specifically a sin offering in the Jewish sense. More specifically, yet the offering of himself a ransom for us and to his bearing the curse of the law in our stead and the design and effects of this ransom-paying, curse-bearing sacrifice of his that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. It is not any kind of a sacrifice but a ransom-paying, curse-bearing sacrifice. It is not any kind of redemption but a sacrificial redemption. A. A. Hodge that the sacrifice of Christ as a ransoming one is clear, first from Matthew 20:28, 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. This remarkable declaration calls for our closest attention. Christ came here not to be ministered unto as the Lord of all, but to give his life not only in and by dying, but throughout the whole course of his earthly service. The word give emphasizes the fact that he acted voluntarily without compulsion of any kind. The reason for his saying that he came to give his life or soul appears from the sacrificial language of Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. The life of the typical sacrifice represented the life of its offerer, a death sentence executed on the former was what the latter had incurred. That was a fundamental idea of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Christ came here to give his life a ransom. This term necessarily connotes that the many for whom the ransom was paid were captives in bondage, the slaves of sin, Titus 3.3, and as such obnoxious to God's holy displeasure. There is an important distinction between ransom and redemption. The former is a price paid to secure the latter. The first mention of a ransom in Scripture is in Exodus 21.30, where a valuable price was required for the deliverance of one who, through guilt, was worthy of death. Exodus 30.12 Christ's ransom was paid to satisfy God's justice, a life for a life, the ransom being a penal infliction. Christ gave his life, a ransom for many. A Greek preposition is anti, which, except in the few instances where it means against, is always used in a substitutionary sense. His life was not given in any vague, indefinite way for the good of others, but was a specific quid pro quo, dying in the very room of his people. The many is in contrast from the one life. The Church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, Acts 20.28, The prominent idea of ransom is that the payment of vicarious substitution of one thing standing in the place of another. No figure can so fully convey this idea as of one drawn from purchases with money. The very idea of purchase necessarily involves that of substitution. I go into a shop and ask the price of a book. It is one dollar. I put down the money and I am at liberty at once to take up the book. It is mine. On what principle? of substitution. I substituted the money for the book. In this way, Christ bought his people. To the Corinthian saints, Paul wrote, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 You were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19 Sinners are the prisoners of divine justice. True, they are the captives of the devil, but who delivered them up to him? The Lord. Satan is but the executioner of his righteous sentence. And their salvation is not a simple discharge without compensation. Neither is the salvation of guilty sinners an act of power only, effected by the interposition of an armful of might to secure their escape. Gratuitous favors and almighty power are both concerned in it, but there is more. There is a price paid, a ransom laid down, every way equivalent to the redemption for which it is offered, and that price was Christ's satisfaction. B., Christ's sacrifice was a priestly one. This has been denied by Socinians, and it is sad to see these those who believe in the deity of Christ adopting this vain reasoning upon the sacred nature of our Savior's ablation. Though a misunderstanding of Hebrew eight four they insist that Christ only entered upon his priestly office, consequently upon his ascension. That Christ was a high priest and acted as such while he was here on earth as Is abundantly clear from Hebrews 2.17, for he made propitiation for the sins of his people on the cross. It is true that others besides priests offered sacrifices to God in Old Testament times, but the New Testament represents Christ not only as priest, but as the great high priest of his people, and if the character, purpose, and scope of that office be interpreted as it must be in the light of the inspired types, then there is no room left for doubt as to the meaning of the Antotype. Israel's high priest represented the people before God. Taken from among men, he was ordained to act on behalf of the men in those matters which related to God so that he might bring near to God both gifts and sacrifices. Hebrews 5.1 As the general character of the prophet was that of one qualified and authorized to speak from God to men, so the general idea of the priest is that of one qualified and authorized to treat in matters of men with God. The high priest was he in whom the entire priesthood culminated, and he especially acted in all respects as the literal representative of the entire holy, parenthesis, separated nations. First, he bore the names of each tribe graven on the stones on his shoulder and on the breastplate over his heart, Exodus 28, 9, 29. Second, he made atonement in behalf of all the people confessing over the head of, that, of the scapegoat all their sins, Leviticus 16, 15, 21. Third, if he sinned, it was regarded as the sin of all people, Leviticus 4.3. His chief function was to offer bleeding sacrifices for perpetuation and to make intercession for the people. The antitypical fulfillment of this is shown us in the epistle to the Hebrews, where Christ is called priest six times and high priest twelve times. Let us very briefly point out the several details of this. First, in Hebrew 2.17.18, we are told that Christ became incarnate that he might be merciful and faithful high priest so forth. Second, in 5, 4, six, we learn that Christ was chosen by God to this office. Third, in Hebrew 5, 7, 8, 3, 9, 11 through 15, 25 to 28, uh, chapter 10, 12 through 19, and so forth, show that Christ literally discharged the functions of a priest offering to God a sacrifice for all his people which through God's acceptance thereof brought to an end all the typical offerings. Conclusive proof of this was furnished by God in rending the veil of the temple, thereby setting aside the whole system of Levitical priesthood, the priestly sacrifice of Christ had now superseded theirs. That Christ was high priest on earth is also clear from Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then we have a high priest that is passed into the heavens and so forth. Aaron was high priest when he entered the Holy of Holies, yet he was also a high priest before, or he could not have entered at all. If Christ be a priest, he must have a sacrifice, for the very nature of sacerdotal office requires it. The entire employment of the high priest as priest consisted in offering sacrifice with the performance of those things which did necessarily precede and follow it. Now Christ was both priest and sacrifice. He offered himself to God. What could be plainer than Ephesians 5.2, Christ hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. He had to do with God as he stood in the relation and respect of a sacrifice. In his dual person, he was priest. In his human nature, he was the sacrifice offered. In the term flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8.3, the Holy Spirit refers to the whole manhood of Christ and it was the sacrifice for sin, by which sin was condemned. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man has somewhat also to offer. Hebrew eight three. And what was it that he did offer? His own blood. Hebrew nine twelve. His body. Hebrew ten ten. His soul or life. Isaiah fifty three ten. Himself. Hebrew nine fourteen. In Christ. Sacrifice. There was an altar to, namely, his Godhead, the altar that sanctified the gift. Matthew twenty-three nineteen. The deity of Christ not only sustained and strengthened his human nature in being a sacrifice herein, therein, but it also gave merit and efficacy to his sacrifice. How did that one sacrifice avail for all the sins of all God's people? But from the fact that he was offered, that he who offered up himself was God as well as man. Christ abides in his office of priesthood, Hebrews 8.1, not to offer first sacrifice, 10.12, but to intercede, 7.25. And C. Christ's sacrifice was a proprietary one. By Adam's fall, a sad breach was made between God and man. Sin greatly incensed the holy God against his rebellious creatures. Nay, there was a mutual enmity constrained between them. On the one hand, we read of God, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5.5. 5. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Wherefore he was turned to be their enemy. He fought against them, Isaiah three sixty three ten. Of man, we read, the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8.7. You that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, Colossians 121. Now Christ came here to effect reconciliation between these alienated parties, to bring God and men together again in amity and love. By his bloodshedding, Christ appeased the righteous wrath of God. By his sacrifice, he pacified the claims of divine judgment. Some have asked, How could the elect be by nature the children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, seeing that God always loved them, Jeremiah 31.3, In the language of John Owen, we reply, He loved us in respect of the free purpose of his will to send Christ to redeem us and satisfy for our sins. He was angry with us in respect of his violated law and provoked justice by sin. The leading New Testament scriptures which present this particular aspect of Christ's sacrifice are the following whom God hath foreordained a perpetuation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, Romans 3.25. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, not by the Holy Spirit's work in us, nor by our laying down the weapons of our warfare, but by the death of his Son, Romans 5.10. We were reconciled through Christ's averting God's anger from us and procuring our acceptance in his legal favor. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.18, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make perpetuation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the perpetuation for our sins, 1 John 2.2. 2. Now the above passages are best understood in the light of the Old Testament types. There we read, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly into the congregation, and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath going out from the Lord, the plague, the plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and made an atonement for the people, and the plague was stayed. Numbers 16, 46, Again we read, The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you from him will I accept, Job 42, 7, 9. What could be plainer? The wrath of God was a pleased by bloodshedding. It remains to be pointed out that the Hebrew word for atonement and the Greek word for propitiation are one and the same. Section D, Christ's sacrifice was an expiatory one. The whole of Christ's humiliation and suffering from his birth to the cross were invested with a priestly and sacrificial character as constituting his once offering up of himself a sacrifice as propitiatory of God and expiatory of his people's sins. Yet the emphasis of Scripture shows that Christ's oblation of himself as victim was principally manifested and concentrated in his pouring out of his soul unto death. Faith is directed to the cross as presenting not merely the historical terminus and climax, but the logical and indispensable completion of all the preceded for sin not only entails suffering, but death. Propitiation defines the bearing which Christ's sacrifice had Godward. It placated him. Expiated has reference to the bearing which Christ's sacrifice made manward. It removed the sins of his people. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26:28. Remission is a judicial term and signifies the annulling of guilt, The removal of all ground of punishment. Once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26. Christ has so put away all the sin of his people that they are perfectly and finally acquitted in the high court of God so that no charge can ever more be laid against them, Romans 8.33. Blessedly and gloriously has the Old Testament type been fulfilled. On that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Leviticus 16.30 Thus are God's believing children able to say, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John
1: 1.17 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.